Welcome to This is Series A, a podcast about the builders and businesses that shape tech and internet culture. I'm Talia Goldberg, partner at Bessemer, and here I have my fellow partner and co-host, Jeremy Levine. So in the course of our day jobs, we get to meet with so many talented entrepreneurs and founders that Talia and I decided by launching the This is Series A podcast, we could share those stories and our interactions with others. So we're hoping to talk about real and candid challenges and lessons that come out of early stage entrepreneurship. Today, I'm super excited because we have Ankur Nagpal, the founder and CEO of Teachable with us. First, a little bit of background on Ankur. He's a leader in the creator economy and one of the most interesting and sharpest entrepreneurs I know. He founded Teachable in 2014, I believe, and it has now grown to become the leading platform for creators to create and to sell courses online. Today, more than 100,000 instructors have earned well over half a billion dollars on his platform. Earlier this year, Teachable was acquired for a reported value of over a quarter billion dollars. As early investors in Teachable, we were very fortunate to play a super small part in Ankur's entrepreneurial journey. Every month as investors, precisely on the first of the month, we would receive an investor update from Ankur. I pulled a little random sample of these emails in preparation for this podcast, and I'm going to read the first few words from each of these update emails just to welcome Ankur to this podcast. The first few words go something like this, yo, yo, or sup fam, or what up gang, or holla everyone. And so with that, Jeremy and I would love to formally welcome Ankur to our show with a warm, yo, yo what up? up. <laughs> it's great, great to be here. Uh, yeah, it's really funny. Uh, there was one time I think I toned it down after some one of the investors uh, said I should take a more formal tone. And then the next email, I got like 17 responses back saying keep it the way it was. But it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I hope others take after you and breathe a little bit of personality yeah. into the updates. It's fun. It's also a good lesson. You can't please all your investors all the time. That's pretty much impossible. So so I'll, I'll kick it off here. So Ankur, you grew up in India and Oman. And I think you went to high school in Oman and came to the U.S. for college. And if I'm if I'm correct, you've been here more or less ever since, save for some vacations, I guess. How important do you think it's been for your development and success as an entrepreneur to do it in, in this country? I've been, you know, what they call a third culture child where I actually never lived in India. I was born in India, grew up my entire life in Oman, came to America for college at 17, which is very interesting because you sort of like, I guess at this point, I would say I'm American, but otherwise it's like, where do you, you know, there was definitely a bit of an identity crisis to where I really belong. The one sentence answer is I do not think I could have built what I built in any other country in the world. And to that, I am very grateful to America, very grateful to my parents for whom um, my dad sort of saw this as the manifestation of his dreams, like in, in, in an alternate reality, he would have liked to be here and started a company. So ever since I was like super young, I know my parents were saving up to send me to college here because they knew this would unlock everything for me here. And it absolutely has. I just wish the country didn't make it so hard sometimes to even stay here. I do not think I'd be able to build this anywhere else. Do you think today the Ankur graduating from high school in Oman is coming here? Or do you think it's just become so difficult that it, it's no longer even possible? I think for now... America is still getting talented immigrants, but for the first time, there's a bit of an existential risk. And I think it's really important for America to not truly blow this in the next 10 years. I mean, I think the competitive advantage this nation has, it becomes a magnet for like 
the smartest people everywhere to move here. And I really think that's something that America should realize is a privilege uh, and do whatever they can to maintain it. Because I do think the immigrant experience here is deteriorating. You know, in a truly globalized world, I do think countries will compete for talent. And thus far, it has not that has not been a factor. But thinking the next 10 years, I do think there's a very real existential risk that this country could lose that. And if the U.S. were simply closed to the future Ankara from Oman, what do you think is the next country on the list? It would probably be Canada. And I mean, it's kind of very real because my my very good example, my younger brother could not immigrate here and now he's doing his MBA at McGill. So like I know a lot of other immigrants, a lot of other technology companies that have gone to Canada. I think there will always be other countries competing for this talent. For the first time ever, I actually know very smart people from India who, you know, are doing their MBAs at, you know, top Ivy League schools that are choosing to go back despite having job opportunities in America, which is definitely a first. In small ways, that trend is already happening. As you thought about where to build Teachable, you built it in New York City, not in Silicon Valley. Um, Why New York? It just so happened that I was living my life in New York City at the time, and it felt like a perfectly appropriate place to build it. So put another way, like I built the company where I was living my life and I chose to live my life in New York City versus the other way of finding the most optimal city to build a company in. And for me, New York was a very simple choice. I was 23 years old at the time and I strongly believe at 23, there's no city in the world more fun than New York. So I graduated, yeah, I graduated college from Cal Berkeley, lived in San Francisco for three years, visited some friends in New York and I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Why am I in San Francisco? And then I moved here and I, I I built Teachable here. And I'm very grateful for many reasons. I think New York tech companies, there's two things that New York tech makes easier. One is I think you kind of tend to focus on like being an actual business a little bit earlier, not throwing shade on any, you know, San Francisco companies, but like New York companies in, in general are very much about bottom line, EBITDA, like what is your revenue? upfront. I also do think it is easier to build a diverse company in New York City. I think New York City is a phenomenally diverse city and it's substantially easier to build a diverse company over here. Would you build your next company there? Probably, yes. Again, like I do think the world has changed from a probably will have a headquarter here. You kind of would have to be open to global talent, but I would probably still have my headquarters over here. Not to say it can't be built in lots of other cities, but I foresee myself living here. And as an extension, it would probably make sense. But I would probably probably keep our corporate office in Brooklyn and not Manhattan doing this, doing this over. So... You are making Jeremy's heart just sing right now because as someone who has just resisted every urge or every temptation to move to Silicon Valley and has been, you know, singing the praise of why it makes sense to stay in New York, he's just, this is music to his ears. Indeed, except, except I don't think my passport lets me into Brooklyn, but other than that, we're on the same page. (laughs) Ankur, one thing that in preparation for this podcast, I was reflecting on and it was, in some ways, it's timely because across the whole tech ecosystem, we've been seeing this tension between supply and demand, or in other words, the tension between the platforms and the aggregators, as you can see a bit with Shopify versus Amazon, or even Epic versus Apple, and and what's happening there. And as you built Teachable, eventually, in a, in a year or two, you started to reach a critical mass of supply, and you had a lot of teachers and courses and content on the platform. You could have chosen to aggregate all this content and to launch some sort of consumer-facing marketplace or drive demand to creators by building the destination where you could discover or find any course and learn whatever you wanted. And you have chosen not to do that, at least thus far. And it seems to have been a decision that served you well. Can you talk a little bit about this decision and your thought process there? The first thing that's very clear at Teachable is we believe we have one customer, right? A lot of 
marketplaces, you know, try and serve to customers. Our customer is the creator. So far, our focus has been what helps creators do the best. Thus far, it has been kind of giving them a storefront, helping them maximize their earnings, giving them all the tools to make running their business easy. From our perspective, we're still intrigued by the idea of driving distribution. It's more a case of, as a company, I find it, it's a little bit better that we're a little bit bigger, but it's very hard to do more than one thing, right? Literally, the only reason we had not focused on driving distribution and the other side of the marketplace is because it's just hard to, at least whenever we've tried to do different things, we've like failed due to a lack of focus. Finally, now, and you know, I say this now in year seven, we're starting to think about driving distribution. So I do think over the next five years, that will be something we do. It will be in hopefully an important inflection point from the business. We'll still keep what makes Teachable Teachable while we do it. Even though we'll build a marketplace to drive demand, we're still going to keep the creator at the center of the universe, which is now slowly starting to happen, right? I think companies are starting to realize just how big individual creators pull is and how they have to keep the creator at the center of their universe. So we are going to experiment over the next, again, several years over different ways of driving creators more distribution, but we'll have to make sure we're still serving the creator. The creator has complete ownership over their audience. We're still like coming at it from a tools perspective, but if we can give get people more sales, I mean people would, you know, absolutely go for that. Just something that would be very thoughtful about because it's kind of hard to do. And and I presume part of when when you say that is you don't want to lose the trust of the creator. How important do you think of that and are there specific things you do to to maintain that trust or or nurture that trust? It's super super important. I I strongly think Teachable may never have gotten the initial early momentum had Udemy not made an incredibly unpopular decision that completely pissed off a ton of people. Like cuz we were we had one customer and now I'm going back in time. We had a single customer we went from customers one to 10 because Udemy decided to change their revenue share from 30% to 50%, which in itself is not necessarily the worst thing. But it was also a public comms disaster because they tried to talk to customers. They talked it down to their audience in a way that made it seem like, hey, we're taking more money for you, but we're doing this for your own sake. And People just felt really insulted by that. And that kind of animosity they felt towards Udemy got us our first set of customers. And since then, it's something we've always been very careful about. Our community and the trust we have is super, super important. Like if we were to lose that, if and when we ever like have an S1 filing, when you talk about risks, the number one risk is always going to be like, if we piss off our community, if we lose the trust of our creators, it's it's game over in all the ways that, you know, we can kind of do that. But just to challenge that for a minute, I mean, I think what you're saying makes sense. Uh, and it sounds like perhaps a strategic mistake on Udemy's part enabled the creation of Teachable. I doubt they would view it that way. And I suspect their business, I don't know it intimately, but I think it's doing quite well. And so is it possible that there's just two flavors and and, and either one works? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I'm not I'm not for a second saying that people cannot build very, very large businesses focusing on the end student. They absolutely can. That's not our business. It's not the business we chose to make. We can absolutely build a business picking the opposite side. It's not the business we chose to build. As you've continued to build for the creators and have them front and center, at some point I've heard you talk about this kind of conversion funnel of people who come to Teachable that sign up. And then if you actually go through and then you look at, well, how many of those people actually then launch a course and then how many of those you know get sales and, and can actually build a business on, on Teachable, there's some kind of funnel. And I think we see this across all creator platforms or business infrastructure platforms where it's just, it's still hard to build a business and entrepreneurship is in many ways a huge privilege. What are the areas 
those or the things that you've done to have a higher conversion rate? And what are the things in the broader ecosystem that you think are still missing? Yeah, I mean, I think you completely nailed it. Like, it's still really, really, really hard. We still have tons of people sign up and not succeed for a multitude of reasons. And I think what we've identified is to be successful on Teachable, you have to do two very, very difficult things. The first difficult thing you have to do is build an audience of some kind, have like some some group of people who like looks up to you, who you can market to, since we don't take care of that. The second very difficult thing we do, create and record an online course, which again, at the very least, you're looking at it could take a month. It's taking time. So we've tried to come at both problems. Like one, how can, how can we either find more customers who have an audience or how can we teach customers how to have an audience? And we've done both those things where, you know, we tried from our marketing to find people that already have audiences. And the good thing is the proliferation of platforms. I can, you know, name tons of them, but like right from Pinterest, YouTube, Twitch, whatever, Instagram, all of them are giving creators audiences, which is great because now that side of the equation is, is happening. Secondly, we're training people. A lot of five years ago, we had this insight that no one actually cares about our software. Uh, what they want is a solution in a lot of cases. They want like, you know, not just the tool, they want also the knowledge. So we started bundling education with software. Like that was one of our first inflection points and in our first realizations is like our conversion rate went up before we started selling not just Teachable, te- but Teachable plus training on how do you build an audience? How do you create a course? All of that. So that was, that was a big learning that we still do to this day. Like even now, our most effective marketing funnels all have to do with, hey, if you buy Teachable, you also get training on how to set up a business, how to build an audience, how to market your course. So we've definitely done that part of things. Now, the other part of it is people need to create a course to have a sale. How can we make that easier? We just rolled out coaching, which now means they don't necessarily need a full-fledged product in order to make their first sale. They can create a product that could be a phone call, that could be a Zoom call, could be a service where the delivery is after the point of sale. So now that's also helping people get sales faster. But those are ultimately our biggest activation metrics. How many people get to their first sale and how fast can they get them to their first sale? Interesting. And just to bring it full circle back to what we were just talking about with the marketplace, how can you help people who may not yet have an audience of their own? That's you know one way of helping to drive demand to creators and, and one way of being creator focused. So Ankur, it seems that you've built a business as an entrepreneur for other entrepreneurs, where those entrepreneurs are essentially folks trying to launch courses and as teachers get paid. How important is that to you and your entrepreneurial journey that you're serving entrepreneurs, not consumers or businesses or someone else? I think it's really cool, frankly. And it was a big part of our thesis where we believe the most motivated teachers of the future, the most motivated people of of you know in lots of different fields will be will be entrepreneurs so the idea of building for other entrepreneurs was super super inspiring i mean it's something that i'm excited about as a concept in every field but like you know whether you want to call it micro entrepreneurship or you want to call it independent business owners but how can we enable more people to become business owners and i think there will be like lots of there'll be better outcomes by virtue of that i actually read in in a moment of good news for all of us that I, I think I read this in Axios, that if you look at the U.S. Census Bureau data, the rate of new business formation over the past month or so is up 77% year over year, which is just super encouraging in a time of you know real challenges. Um, but I think a lot of that is obviously getting enabled by internet first businesses and platforms, yep. the likes of, of yep. Teachable, the likes of Shopify, the likes of Square. And, um, and that's pretty amazing. And that these businesses are going to be 
digital first that are getting created. And that's just in an era where previously entrepreneurship was declining. That stat made me super pumped. Yep. Um, at, internally, we, we I think we refer to them as independent business owners, but no matter what you call it, I mean, there's, I'm a huge, huge believer in like a rising class of basically every individual sort of being a business. And it doesn't have to be perfectly one-to-one. They can, you know, recruit the odd person there. But really, like, you've kind of gone, like, if you look at historically, sort of everyone got absorbed into the full-time job economy. I do think in the future, there's going to be a lot more individual businesses, whether you think of them as like creators, whether you think of them as freelancers, whether you think of people just sort of having multiple streams of income. But like, I'm a big, big believer in, you know, the business of one, if you want to call it. And I think, you know, Teachable definitely plays into that. Well, one of the one of the promises of our of our show is that we're going to we're going to share with our, our listeners the early challenges or some of the early challenges that you faced. Uh, and I might point out that the the sudden burst recently in the US at least of entrepreneurship is probably in part due to necessity as opposed to opportunity seeking. W- when you started Teachable, my guess is you graduated from a fancy college in the US. It wasn't a necessity. You could have gotten a job, um, but, but you didn't. You wanted to go start something on your own. Why? My dad had always told me growing up about how he wanted her how he's wanted to start a business. I, I consciously think I wanted to do it myself, but when you're told something as a child, it's kind of hard to know where one line starts, the other one ends. But my dad always said that, look, look, I never could start a business because it wasn't the responsible thing for us to do. Like, I mean, from his perspective, like the first in his family to be middle-class and as a result wanted to take responsible decisions. But either way, like ever since I was very young, he's like, you don't have to get a, you don't have to get a job for whatever reason. Like I worked hard and did all this in my life so that you can afford to take more risks. So that's kind of part one. Part two, is I stumbled into it after my freshman year of college. I was interning at Amazon as a software engineer. Candidly, I kind of like hated it. it so it taught me that I neither I didn't want to be a software engineer and I also like could not get comfortable with working in a very large organization since my entire team was responsible for one single page in like one single dashboard inside Amazon's like seller product. And I was like, this is miserable. But that coincided with the launch of the Facebook platform in 2007, which was a great time, I think, to be in college and be on Facebook when like all these like viral applications exploded. And I taught myself how to build an app that summer. And by the end of that summer, I got to a point of making, let's call it between like 15 and $20 a day. Um, and that basically was kind of the moment at which I'm like, this is amazing. I'm going to do different versions of this for the rest of my life. So that, so since that point, I mean, I, you know, Amazon was the only time I've actually been at an organization. And I guess like probably year two or three of Teachable when it formalized into like an actual company is probably what I would consider my first and only job of my adult life. So... I'm laughing to myself because I think I have a book that says you can live on Europe on $20 a day. So in theory, you could have made Facebook (laughs) apps and traveled around Europe for life. Yeah. I mean, the Facebook app business too, we scaled it to, you know, many, eventually tens of thousands of dollars a day. I do believe, and it's really funny because the Facebook app ecosystem at the time was a bunch of kids building apps. And if you look at them, a lot of those kids now, five, 10, 15 years have gone on to build very large, successful, meaningful companies. I think that was a a phenomenal time in the world because for the first time in history, anyone could tap into tens of millions of, of, of people. Like distribution has never been that easy. Like I still don't think like Teachable still has many, many, has a long way to go for me to reach the number of people that we reached on Facebook even today. So oh, there's no place where distribution is as, as easy as it was in Facebook yep. in like 2008 or yep. nine. Yep. I remember just yep. being totally scared to even like yep. click on anything <laughs> for fear that suddenly all my friends yeah. would know that yeah. I took, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever quiz. Yep. 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 Guilty. <laughs> guilty. 
Uh-huh. Our podcast is called This is Series A, so I want to talk a little bit about fundraising because your fundraising history was a little bit non-traditional. Typically, we see companies raise more and more as they become more and more successful in rapid succession over time. And instead, when reading your fundraising history, it looks like something like you raised a $2 million seed, then another two or two and a half million dollars, then $4 million, then another $4 million. What, why did you do it this way? Or what, what do you know that everyone else doesn't know? Yeah, I think one of the things that we were, especially as the company matured, we were, that made us a little bit unconventional is that we were always relatively close to profitability, which never we were never profitable. But we always were, let's call it a quarter of not hiring people away from being profitable. Um, and that allowed us to sort of control, not raise money purely for the sake of like us needing capital to continue our operation. Um, and I think there's a few things going on here. I think one, we had a relatively easy business. And by easy, I mean, like, it's not complicated and requiring lots of capital upfront. It's not like real world logistics. That's one thing. The second thing is, we didn't, we were not in a winner take all direct to consumer type space where like that funding was necessary. I think that's also really helpful, right? A lot of times companies get locked into acquisition battles with each other. And it sort of creates this situation where like neither company really benefits from it. Um, And finally, I think I think we were early, but I think we'll start to see more businesses choose to go down this path of like probably raising a, a normal seed. But then as they scale the business and they find their economics kind of working, not necessarily continue to raise money at like the series A, B, C prices, but smaller dollar amounts because they don't actually end up needing the capital and raising at the right price still helps you sort of set a set value for your stock. It shows sort of the company, you know, growing. And I think we'll start seeing we'll start seeing a, a lot more of that. And is that to say that at any point in building the business, do you think that had you had an extra few million dollars or five or ten million dollars more to spend than you did, there weren't really ways in which you could have gotten kind of that much incremental more growth or success over time? Maybe this is just my lack of imagination or skill as a CEO, but not in a significant way. The way I articulated it to our team is, you know, we always wanted to double our business every year. And it did feel like we could do that close to profitability, burning a little bit of money. I think we could have spent a lot more money and like maybe instead of growing 2x, growing 2.25x or something. So yes, could we have like absolutely generated more growth? Yeah, but in a like decreasing returns to every marginal dollar spent or whatever. Like there's some businesses I look at, I'm super jealous. I mean, they've got their CAC down, they've large, like for them, it's really simple. Pour money into ads, grow business, simple, right? If we had that kind of a dynamic where we literally needed cash to fuel acquisition in a funnel that's just like working really well and can ingest more cash, sure. We would have. But for us, like our best channels were not paid channels. The, our market has been growing and we're kind of like growing the market as we're going along. So for us, the additional capital was never that helpful. I mean, even when the company was acquired, I think we had probably 75% of all the cash we ever raised in the bank or something. So more capital was not the answer. Was part of it born out of necessity? In other words, when you were getting going, did you find it difficult to get access to capital? You know, teaching people how to teach courses and get paid sounds kind of like a wacky idea. Now that, you know, half a billion dollars of student fees have been paid, it's not so wacky. But at the time, it was a little crazy. And so how tough was it to get that first outside financing? The fr- I remember the first check was frustrating. Like it yet, because I don't know, it's 45, maybe 60 days. A lot of people, the most common objection I heard is like, 
oh, this is a cool idea, totally back you, but this is a $20 million company. Like, I just don't see how this is, you know, any bigger than this. It's like super, it's like this niche company, all of that. Uh, but again, we got fortunate. Once we got our first, once we got our first check, which was from Matt Brezina, who at the time, I'm pretty sure never knew he was our first investor. After that, uh, I think pretty early on, we got Naval from AngelList to invest and also syndicate it to the Angel Network. And that took care of our first round within the next four or five days. Um, and then Accomplice came in relatively soon after that. So we always had access to that level of capital. So that was not a huge driving force. Um, it was just that I also do think again, going, I don't know whether it's like New York City or whether it's like my Indian parent upbringing, like could just also never get us as a company to spend that much money early on. We're always like super paranoid about what a burn is, trying to cut costs. I, I think a lot of that is, I don't know whether it's cultural or personality driven, but that definitely like played a factor. I could never get comfortable with like, just like rapidly expanding burn at any point. It's been an amazing, you know, past seven years and you decided to sell the business and, and kind of merge it with uh, Hotmart. For those that aren't familiar with Hotmart, it's, you know, a wildly impressive company based in Brazil, but one that few in the US have, have heard of. Can you share with the, the listeners a little bit about like how that came to be? What is Hotmart? How did you decide that it made sense to go and do that? The first sort of introduction to this entire thing is we received an email from one of the partners or directors at General Atlantic, private equity firm, who we had, we had talked to earlier in the year as we were considering a, you know, our Series B, C, whatever you want to call it, which we didn't end up happening. But the partner asked if a kind of suspicious email saying, hey, I have something very important to talk to you about. Can we can we discuss it? And came into the office. And then uh, again, we were not looking at merging, selling, none of that. But he mentioned that there's this company in Brazil that's doing exactly what we're doing. He shared their numbers, which I can't share because they're not ours, but like it was several multiples of what we were doing. And we're pretty, we thought we were doing pretty well. They were growing faster. They were profitable on a bigger base in a different market. And my first reaction was this company does not exist. I would have heard of them. Like, like, like I, I know the market, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Um, either way, I decided to take a meeting with the founders because if nothing else, there's a lot we can learn from them, right? Like it's, 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 it's very, like, it was very, very impressed. And then that started a courtship process of, you know, a few months, they flew to New York and we kept in touch. We saw that our businesses were very synergistic. Actually, I hate hate that I'm using that word. Um, but we saw that we're running we're we're running basically the same business in two different markets, and the sum of parts was was phenomenally exciting. I mean, basically, we could skip two years of company building. They were willing to offer something that, in addition to like the purchase price and all of that, that was giving me sort of you know founder level equity and founder level voting and all of those rights and privileges in the parent business with the idea of like, look, we'll go and build this together. We'll build an international business. So yeah, that's like that, you know, over a period of spending all that time with them, the decision finally just came down to the fact that it was the founders were probably the biggest thing where it's a founder led driven company where even the investors were happy to maintain it as a founder led company in every way, like whether you're looking at the board structure, or whether you're looking at the like the share voting percentages, just the fact that even though they made that deal happen, they kind of left it as a founder led company with the idea that we could keep doing what we're doing, but internationally made it made it a no brainer. And I would imagine that was critical for you in part because as we talked about earlier in the show, you didn't have to take a job. You wanted to yep. build something yourself and to suddenly no longer be building it just as, as yourself as a leader, but now with others that you have to answer to from time to time, maybe as partners rather than as bosses. Um, I would imagine that was important. We hear this from entrepreneurs oftentimes. It's almost like parting with your baby, um, yep. but somehow you've managed to get the best of both worlds. Or is that what you believe anyway? 
Yeah, that's what I that's what I believed. I'm curious to, you know, sort of see how it unfolds. But for now, I really do feel incredibly fortunate that we kind of have all of those things going on. And to me, the fact that it was an international company and the focus is building an international business is important because again, I've lived in America 12 years, but I do think it's very easy to sort of fall into a very American centric viewpoint. Like I find myself falling into that. And I really liked the ability that like, hey, this company is based outside the US. They're a very large Latin American market. But more than that, when we think about the next five years, it's all about really trying to build a truly international business, which I found exciting. You, you suddenly went from being your own boss and, and starting your own company to now, you know, not being your own boss and, and being on a team with, with the founders of Hotmart. How has that changed and, and what is that experience like? Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is I guess I'm never going to know what that experience is like in isolation of like a global pandemic and all and our businesses like rapidly growing because of the aforementioned pandemic at the exact same time. So I can't divorce those two things, right? But very early on, like it was really funny. We, we started our conversations like as we're closing the deal, like, okay, let's figure out ways of integrating, working together. So many like so many cool things we can do together. Then the pandemic hit and we were both in a very fortunate position that our businesses just suddenly started getting insane demand out of like literally, you know, like just people needing to move to online education rapidly. So very early on, we decided like, you know what, for 2020, like this kind of growth is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We'll have our entire company lifetime to talk about integration and synergies and all the things we should do together. For now, let's just each hold on to our respective growth like tailwinds and just ride this as hard as we can. So honestly, thus far, it, they've been supporting us and and that's been really nice. Like we've never been capital constrained, but now we're definitely not capital constrained. For now, our goals are just let's keep growing our respective businesses as large and as fast as possible. And over the course of time, figure out how we should work together, what the opportunities are and so forth. So thus far, I would say it's not even been like a full reflection of what it will be like, but it's been great. I mean, we've just been, we've just had each other's backs and the businesses are so, so similar that for most things that we see, they've seen and the other way around. Well, it all sounds so positive, but yet if I think back to if I were in your shoes and I had sold my business right before this black swan events happened, and then suddenly the demand for my product and my offering would be completely off the charts. I don't know if I'd be smiling or sad or or what it would be like. So get, what's the answer here? You can't, you can't ever blame yourself for making a decision when like new data happens after the decision. I can only be like, did I make the right decision with the data I had at the time? Absolutely. So I, it's That's so rational of you. Yeah, but like, <laughs> I'm pretty chill about it. Uh, it actually like I, I'm, I feel very, very confident that I made the right decision at the time. Now, had I known there was a global pandemic, yeah, I would have like asked for like two to three times more money. But who the hell knows that, right? Well, it still has a happy ending. That's a good thing. So, so Ankur, to our, our speed round of final questions, just to get your take on a few things, we'll fire them away and, and you come up with your uh, first answer that hits your head. So for starters, if you could own 1% of any private company that's raised less than $15 million, what would it be? I recently committed to this company in Y Combinator's uh, batch, Bikai. They're they're building Shopify for India in a way that I think makes a ton of sense. I'm super super optimistic about what they're what they're going to build. Bikai, B I K A Y I. It makes a ton of sense because in India, local business um, does not you know need a Shopify type store. They need it's all running through WhatsApp. It's all highly integrated local commerce. They're doubling every month. I'm very very optimistic about that business. Cool. That's, we'll, we'll take that as a free tip for us venture capitalists. Ankur, what is one thing that people who, who meet you or spend time with you often think or assume that's just simply wrong if they don't know you really well? That I'm good with technology. 
<laughs> Meaning you aren't. I'm not specifically so. I definitely ask for help. He's the one whose microphone cut out in the middle yeah. of the recording. <laughs> That's true. We did have to restart the podcast. <laughs> and I forgot about it. Yeah. yeah. If you weren't building Teachable still within the confines of or the opportunities of Hotmart, what would you be doing? I would be living on an island somewhere trying to like find my soul or something, like something very, very different. Um, I was reading somewhere about how American capitalism is prefacing the idea of making a lot of money behind computers so you never have to spend time behind a computer again, um, something along those lines. And last one, if you if you couldn't live in the U.S., where would you be living and why? And and maybe we'll take off the, the island um, and we'll assume that you're not yet ready to go find your soul. <laughs> I mean, this is a very real question because, I mean, this summer I was trying to spend the summer in Lisbon, but I couldn't because our passports are no longer good there. But I'm actually, again, whenever my, at some point in my life, I will live in lots of different cities going back to some, the sort of international focus. I mean, I would like to spend anywhere between the next two to 10 years living outside the country in lots of different cities. I just named Lisbon as one, but like spending time truly in different parts of the world while I still can um, is something that I, I absolutely not just want to do, but will do in the near to medium future. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been awesome to have you. Sweet. Yeah, it was fun. Hopefully the this time the recording looks good. So I think, I think it's, something is working. So We hope so. Stay safe in New York. Will do. I'll see you back in, uh, on the Manhattan side. If you liked this episode of This Is Series A, we'd love it if you'd rate and review wherever you are listening. It really helps us with spreading the word and introducing the show to other early stage entrepreneurs going through the journey. Until our next episode, I'm Talia Goldberg. And I'm Jeremy Levine, and this is Series A.